2: It's How Do We Fix It? with Richard and Jim.
0: How Trust Can Save Journalism with Aaron Pilhofer.
2: Boy, that was good. That's a real announcement, Jim. I'm learning from you, Richard, every day. (laughs) I I
0: study at the knee of the master.
1: (laughs) I teach students who are, let's just say, much younger than me. And, you know, the way they get news... It finds them. The same elements of the algorithm that that would surface a cat photo or a photo of your niece or nephew um, also happens to work brilliantly to surface some of this fake news. When you have a thoroughly reported piece of investigative journalism surrounded by, let's be honest, crap content, in some cases fake content, what does that say?
2: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Jim, do you trust what you read in the news media? Depends where I read it. (laughs) Yeah. It also depends on your political views, apparently. A recent Pew Research survey finds Democrats are much more likely than Republicans to trust the media, and the gap is is really
0: widening. Right. A recent Gallup survey found that overall trust in media has hit an all-time
2: low. Aaron Pilhofer is our guest professor of journalism innovation at Temple University in Philadelphia. Before joining Temple, Aaron was executive editor of digital journalism at The
0: Guardian, and he was also a senior editor at The New York Times.
2: Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jim and I are both journalists. How big is the trust crisis that we're facing in the news media? From my point of view, it's
1: everything. It's the reason why we're seeing a degrading of the business model. It's the reason why we're seeing uh, people turning to alternative sources, why you're seeing people turn away from what we would look at as a traditional news outlets toward things like Breitbart and the rest. I think it, it's everything.
0: So a lot of people kind of woke up to this problem when they saw the rise of what people call fake news and, and the influence of outlets like Breitbart. When I look at this, I kind of feel like, well... I'm glad you noticed this has been going on a long time, that both sides have their sources of news that tend to confirm what people already believe. Yeah, and and let's be clear about this. I don't
1: think that one side of the political spectrum or the other has a particular dominance in this, in this area of fake news. This has been a, a bipartisan problem forever. You, know, you can remember Vince Foster. You know, you remember the, the conspiracy theories about Vince Foster. You yeah, this like, is the
2: President right. Clinton's yeah. aide who was, who was found was Found
1: dead and all of the conspiracy theories that were going around about that. Yeah, so this is nothing new. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing now, though, uh, particularly with fake news, is you're seeing the rise of, of platforms, in particular Facebook, that supercharge these uh, these kinds of messages in a way that um, is unprecedented.
0: So if you have an algorithm that is designed to like stuff and, and promote stuff that makes them, riles them up or, or reinforces their their viewpoints... If the algorithm favors that stuff, you can see how it gradually pushes both sides into a more radical version, more emotional version of seeing reality. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the same
1: the same elements of the algorithm that that would surface a cat photo or a photo of your niece or nephew um, also happens to work brilliantly to surface some of this fake news. And I think that really took folks like Mark Zuckerberg by surprise.
2: One other problem we need to face is that people don't neatly divide into left or right groups. Uh, The largest number of people in the United States identify as independents. That's right. And yet many in the media... Because conflict is so easy to report set this up as a right versus left Dichotomy rather than looking at the large numbers of people in some way in the center
1: Yeah, and and that's you know again This goes back to the long history of sort of he said she said journalism
2: So I was asking you how big is the crisis? um it's a crisis for the business model of journalism, as well as the way people view uh, reading something.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, just to, it focused specifically on the business model because in addition to my work in the newsroom at The Guardian, I actually served for years as the interim chief digital officer. So I was sort of on the executive side, which was fascinating and eye-opening. And I got to see this firsthand. I got to see how The Guardian, um, we had projected 10% year-on-year growth in digital ads in 2015 and actually saw a 3% Uh, decline which was a shock but it wasn't just us you saw it happening to the New York Times you saw it happening to all the big media companies and which trunk
0: which for people who don't follow journalism was uh, a big shock and extremely depressing for all of us who work in journalism because that was gonna be the savior yeah that was that was the print revenues fell we were gonna make it up with lots of volume lots of traffic and smart digital advertising and when that started to decline that's kind of a wake up call for the whole business model it is and that i mean that
1: was the business model right that we were going to build growth we were going to scale that was the model but that's just absolutely falling apart right now
2: and it's it's impossible to overemphasize what a vast change there is now in the way that the listener or the reader Gets his or her information.
1: I am now um, a professor, so I I teach students who are, let's just say, much younger than me. And, you know, the way they get news is the way most people get news at that age, it finds them. Um, they will find it through Facebook. They'll find it through Twitter. They'll find it through social feeds. They will find, you know, the news, if it's important enough, will find them, which is such a different model from when so, we were younger.
2: So rather than being edited and curated, it's, it's part of a conversation.
1: Exactly. It's coming from someone you know, someone you follow. It's part of a network, and it's about trust. You mm-hmm. know, it's proven that when people read When they read news stories in the social feed, a lot of times they'll they'll tap through, they'll read a piece, and they'll come back to Facebook or whatever it is and have no idea that they had just visited The Economist or The Wall Street Journal or The New York Times. They'll have no idea. But they will know the provenance of that story because it's something that a friend shared with you someone you trust someone you know someone you follow so it has this gets back to this whole trust problem that we have
2: so it sounds like we're still spinning that the journalists wherever they work whether it's uh, at an online site or at the Des Moines Register or at the Economist or the New York Times that we're still really struggling to catch up with this new world and we haven't quite got this right yet
1: not even close and we are still sort of producing news for a world that doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. A world of sort of where you open up a web browser and you type nytimes.com into that web browser. Remember doing that? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) This world just doesn't exist.
0: I mean, people talk about how much different things are from the print days, but they're even different from most of the web days in terms of how we all consume our content. That's right. And I think the challenge there uh,
1: is how do you in some ways embed the trust that should go with that piece how do you how do you package that along with the the words that or the images or the video um, when you 're talking about a
0: world in which it 's entirely disintermediated now you 've talked about making trust the core mission for journalism, and you 've pointed out some really subtle and not so subtle ways that we 've undermined it, not just in sloppy reporting or biased reporting, but also sometimes just in the way we present it, like how many websites that have pretty good content are surrounded by terrible, not just clickbaity headlines in the content, but by these outbrain ads. You know, you'll be reading a, a serious story and there'll be an ad for some wacko conspiracy theory or for some, even like you look at Slate, you know, an organization I really admire, but some of the ads, it's like this one weird trick for belly fat. It's like, you're asking me to trust your science reporting and yet right next to it is all this really yucky bogus advertising yeah i would love to know what impact does that
1: have when you have a, a you know thoroughly reported piece of investigative journalism surrounded by let's be honest crap content in some cases fake content what does that say
2: How big is this cultural problem of trust in American society, not just with regards to how we look at news media, but other institutions?
1: Oh, I mean, I think it's huge. But I think it's a bigger problem for media, and and in particular because of the role it plays in our democratic society. And looking at journalism in the way that maybe a Silicon Valley entrepreneur might and say, well, this is disruption and, you know, you know, sorry, this is the way it goes, uh, where the New York Times becomes the friendster of, of media. You know, we can't afford that
2: future. It's easy to blame Donald Trump for making things worse with his attacks on the media, and he probably has. Uh, but he struck a chord. When yeah. he
1: said those things. Well, and this is, I think, also part of the problem that's embedded in this trust discussion. I think, you know, there's a lot of journalists who now talk about trust as if it's the reader's problem. So we're, t- we're talking about <laughs> yeah. solutions to trust and, as being things like, you know, media literacy. As if if only people understood more about what we do, then suddenly the trust problem would go away. Well, actually, I kind of think it's not the reader's fault. I kind of think it's, it's as much, maybe more, our fault. We are the ones who have the problem here. We're the ones who need to be better about reaching out to readers, about bringing them into the process, about building trust back.
0: You know, it's so funny. Anybody who's not on the part of the, the left-leaning liberal m- mainstream— immediately would say, Dan Rather, one of the most respected people in journalism, Who literally went on the air days before an election with a forged document from a wacko conspiracy nut job, and tried to you know turn this into a scandal, and still hasn't apologized. This was a scandal. And still gets awards from the journalism industry. So people who aren't part of that world look at that and say, well, why should we trust
2: you? Explaining this for for younger listeners, (laughs) this was in the George W. Bush 2004 election. But you know,
0: you see. You know, I'm certainly no Trump supporter, but just in the recent weeks, we've seen every day or two, something will come out that a lot of the media flips over just because it's funny. You know, it's something as simple as, oh, Sean Spicer was hiding in the bushes outside the White House. All of a sudden, that's all over Twitter. That's all over everywhere. It wasn't true. A different angle of this other photograph shows you he wasn't actually hiding in the bushes. And anyway, who cares? There's so much important stuff genuine scandals to report. Yeah, and
1: and I think this goes back to the business model question because when scale was the goal, then producing as much content as you possibly can was winning, right? Mm -hmm. And that's actually the model that many news organizations... and, and, And I think that's part of why you see, you know... Non-scandals reported as scandals. These are like, you know, these very salacious kind of many things that people will forget about in a week. Now, my argument is that part of the solution is actually to do less. Is to focus on the really impactful stories, and that's also from the reader's point of view. I mean, imagine that from the point of view of the audience, you are inundated with this um, content day in and day out. How are you supposed to uh, decide what's
2: important, what's not, not important? We're not helping people. We're going to talk about solutions in a moment. This is how do we fix it? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies, and our guest. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. Guest is Aaron Pilhofer. Let's look at solutions with Aaron Pilhofer. You've asked a provocative question, which is, what if news organizations optimized every part of their operation for trust? What do you mean by that? Well, this
1: question has taken on a life of its own, which I'm actually glad of, because uh, I think this does get at the heart of, of the problem. And the problem isn't just a single thing. Journalists, I think, think of trust like a badge. And in a in a digital world, it just doesn't work like that. Well, I work for the New York Times. The New York Times is a well-known, respected organization. Therefore, people should trust me. That's how I think the typical journalist thinks about it. I don't know that that actually works in the digital world, particularly in a world where Journalism is sort of following you, so we have to stop thinking about journalism that way and we have to start thinking about Trust as something you earn every single day So
2: we have to completely change the culture of the news business of news organizations That's job one. Well the culture we have to change the workflow
1: the processes. We have to change the products and with trust as the I mean, I hate this term, but there's sort of the North Star metric, right? Think about it. If you change the newsroom tomorrow and suddenly trust was the thing that every journalist cared about and that was it and that's how they were rewarded and that's how that we could somehow measure it and that was the thing that was winning, but the business model didn't change and around all that content, you were still putting outbrained taboola, terrible ads, lousy experiences, things that made that content to be really blunt feel cheap then I think it would undermine everything you're doing.
2: So just on your website, for instance... Get rid of those junky ads yeah. that surround the content.
1: I, I think get rid of the, the junky ads. I think you have to think about design, you know, really from the ground up. One example I cite frequently is, is PolitiFact. So PolitiFact is a, is a fact-checking site. They're nonpartisan, nonpolitical. They have a very rigorous process for choosing which facts to check, how they check them, and they're very open about their process. I mean, if we took the PolitiFact methodology and applied it to reporting news, um, I think you would automatically have better content.
0: So part of this you're saying would be more transparency about sources making you know if a, if you're doing a big article about a statistical trend maybe making the databases available Absolutely. and searchable this is this is a big trend in science right now not just science journalism but in, in uh, science journals is having the data sets available and even allowing other scientists to manipulate or to work with the data. So and, let
2: uh, readers show where, where show you your got work. your information show, your, show work. your work. Now we've spoken with David Bornstein of Solutions Journalism Network on this podcast, how does it also contribute to readers feeling greater trust?
1: So I think it's, I think this is kind of a bank shot, right? So solutions journalism is a mindset. It's a changed mindset. And I think it, it changes the way you approach a story. It changes the way you report a story. It changes the goal, what you're trying to achieve. And just even the idea of thinking about what we are trying to achieve, I think actually is a, is a significant change. In terms of who you're trying to serve and what you're trying to do as a journalist, I think that's why it fits into the, trust, into the trust sort of umbrella. That when you are thinking in terms of making the world a better place, which I'm not sure that David Bornstein would describe solutions journalism like that. But when you're thinking that my goal is to make my community better, my goal as a journalist is to improve education in my city, state, hometown, whatever it is, then I think that changes the way you think as a journalist. And hence, I think you get to the trust
2: equation. Solutions journalism is one of the things that we are trying to do here on this show. How important is it to include in the culture of newsrooms the idea that that we don't just inform our readers? We also sometimes suggest different ways that things might be done. Yeah, I, it's essential.
1: And you know, what I love about about solutions journalism is it's taking a point of view in a way of how journalism should be practiced. It's not saying journalism should come from the left you know, or the right politically. But it is saying that journalists actually have a responsibility to do more than just point out problems. They actually have a responsibility to be part of the solution.
2: So that it's not just who, what, when, where, why, but also now what? Now what? Exactly.
0: We just did a show about the big VW scandal, the emissions scandal with their diesel engines. And one of the things that came out of it was there was an incredible lack of diversity at the top. You know, just a bunch of old white German men basically making the decisions for a global company. Yeah, um, and that was part of what led to the problems. What about diversity in newsrooms? Yeah, I'm not sure that news
1: organizations as a whole are trying all that hard to be uh, to, to improve diversity in every sense of the word within their newsrooms, political diversity um, among them. Uh, you know. And I think this actually is is a huge part of the problem. People have identified it. People have said, you know, you have disproportionately coastal-based media trying to report on a country that is disproportionately not
2: coastal, Yeah, at least in I, terms I, I, of I th- geography. I think, be, I think it would be just great if one of the major networks said, okay, we're going to do our nightly news program not out of New York, not out of Washington, not out of Los Angeles, but out of Chicago or out of Des Moines or – and literally – Put their headquarters there. But when you talk about diversity as well, I think a lot of people in newsrooms think of diversity as as political diversity or gender diversity, but there's also class diversity. uh, Having people who didn't necessarily go to Princeton or Yale, or who came from different parts of the country and have different perspectives.
1: But the problem, I think, is economic. You're seeing you know, news organizations, particularly uh, in cities outside New York and outside the, the coast, really hurting, really hurting. You're seeing one newspaper towns very soon becoming zero newspaper towns. You're seeing even at the, the small town level, Um, it's, it's starting to the problem with with the business model starting to hit even local news organizations. And that's really frightening. And I do feel that over time, this has to be part of the trust equation. You know, you have to think in terms of who are these people that you are sending out into the world to report these stories, you know, where do they come from?
2: There's a Dutch newspaper called De Correspondent, yep, or The Correspondent in English. Yep, They're launching an initiative in the U.S. Explain why you think that's important and different from other uh, news outlets. Yeah, so De
1: Correspondent's a smallish uh, news site. It's based in the Netherlands. Um, it's about the closest thing I've seen to a truly trust-based news organization, and I mean that at every level. So they don't take advertising. They're entirely reader funded. They were launched with a Kickstarter, or equivalent of a Kickstarter, sort of a crowdfunding campaign.
0: Um, all membership uh, money, and people pay people over pay sixty dollars a year, sixty euros, so even more than that, yeah, uh, yeah. to um, to be part of this,
1: uh, this a, a, community a, as readers, yes. yeah. as readers. And, and I think the word you used there is the important one: community. They feel the people who who give money to D Correspondent, the people who subscribe to D Correspondent are called members. They're not subscribers. Uh, D Correspondent treats them as a community. They hire journalists who are part of their job, a huge part of their job, 50% of their job is interacting with their readers. And they have had spectacular success with this, We're, what
0: I would call sort of a collaborative reporting, right, with their community. So they, if, they have a, so if a, somebody's going to do a story on some um, health issue, for example, yeah. before they do it, they'll send out an alert to their reader saying, I'm reporting on some issue with pregnancy. Or, Does so anybody I, know about this? Has anybody experienced this, right? I, I can even point you to a very
1: recent example where their uh, correspondent is working on, um, on environment, uh, said to readers hey i'm going to do a piece on shell oil which is netherlands based and about you know fossil fuels and when did they know and what you know do readers when
2: did they know that fossil fuels led contributed to, to, to
1: climate change that's right and just put out a call to 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 i mean from the point of view of an investigative reporter this is heretical like you would never do this right the first time the first time the what we would call target of an investigation would see the thing in print is the first time it was printed, right? You would never do this. But this reporter um, put out a call and within a couple of weeks had not only gotten an enormous response, had an actual videotape that dated back to the, I think it was the 1980s, showing. 1991, I think. 1991, <laughs> there you go. That showed. Jim's been doing his
2: over. <laughs> yeah, that
1: showed that Shell Oil knew that. That fossil fuels were involved in climate change.
2: Aaron Pilhofer, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.
0: I've got a lot of thoughts about this.
2: Oh, dear. Um, Here we go. Yeah, I know. Here we go.
0: So first of all, you know, I used to be editor of Popular Mechanics magazine. Mm-hmm. And I always said to myself, I always said to my team, on any topic we write about, we have hundreds of readers out there who know more about it than we do. Even if it's just how to hammer a
2: nail, so let them in the tent.
0: Well, there wasn't that many ways to let them in the tent, but there is but, now. But but also, it's humility. As you, instead of preaching to people from on high that we're the experts and we know everything and you should listen to us, always think about like hmm. What is somebody who really knows a lot about this topic? you know the physicist the, the the engineer the the pilot you know we're writing about plane crashes we're not pilots, but a lot of our readers are. So it gives you hum- humility that the trust has to come from being really accurate and reporting really, really carefully, not just saying we're the authorities and you have to listen to us. That is a huge mindset change. Right. I think right. that's required. And he, you know, he t- had said this great phrase. He said that too many reporters think that trust is a badge. like you, And they lament. That journalism has lost trust. We're the New York Times. You have to trust us. We're so authoritative, and in fact, I think that it is something that has to be earned. And I think that for a lot of people in the media, they were shocked when all this Trump stuff came out that attacking About the fake media news. work. Yeah. But for anybody who's not liberal. This goes back decades. I, you know I mentioned that famous Dan Rather case to conservatives that 's a famous story to liberals it 's like oh yeah wasn 't there some kind of scandal about that they don 't really remember
2: I am part of the liberal consensus, and I do have to point out that the Washington Post the New York Times recently have been doing some remarkable reporting work on what the Trump administration has done. So I don't want that to be left unsaid. No, it's
0: vital. It's vital. I mean, it's such a target-rich environment right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, and yet, you know, you still see the media running after it. We mentioned that sort of Sean Spicer hiding in the bushes. Something like that pops up almost every day. They're not doing a very good job of winning over these suspicious Trump people. And I, And I don't mean winning people over by repeating nonsense or defending things that shouldn't be defended. There's plenty of great work that needs to be done challenging some of the things the trump administration is doing but when you see reporters on their twitter feeds having a good yuck over every time you there's know there's been a problem with know, the trump administration or, yes. or even things that turn out not to be true um, then it, it makes it does tend to erode that trust which i think is uh, is so vital to the whole operation
2: one thing that used to have a clear separation especially in Britain where I lived for 20 years was the tabloid media versus the broadsheet media you had the Times of London the Daily Telegraph the Guardian serious newspapers doing serious work everybody knew that and then there were these fun newspapers like the Daily Mirror and the Sun and they they they're still around and they're kind of crazy and they throw out lots of nonsense and they're horrible but the point I'm making is I think a lot of people a lot of readers don't approach journalism seriously. They think of it as entertainment as well, which it is to them. I mean, one reason why in New York a lot of people buy the New York Post is not to be informed, but because it's kind of fun compared yes. to the the, uh, the the gray lady New York Times.
0: And I think and I think social media has exacerbated that. A lot of what people share in their social media feeds is stories
2: that are funny. With with newspapers, it was pretty clear you didn't take everything very seriously. That a tabloid newspaper said, whereas now it's much more difficult to uh, weed out Mm -hmm. the serious sites, or at least the sites that are attempting to build trust and do well-reported journalism, and those that are saying, hey, here's a piece of fun to chat about, to gossip about. Well,
0: so here's where Aaron's ideas, I think, are so important. The show your work. More transparency. Don't say, like you know, we're reporting this or we're, we're issuing these, this kind of, um, uh, uh, point of view because we're the experts get in there and be more transparent about how you came up with your information. And, you know, back to the popular mechanics, humility thing, entertain the idea that maybe just maybe you and all your friends aren't, always right about everything when you're surrounded by people who think like you it goes back to the show we did on Volkswagen everybody in the management thought exactly the same way there was no one there to challenge this massive mistake they were making but that's true in newsrooms, too. If everyone around you thinks the same way, has the same opinions, that's a good time to maybe say, wait a minute, maybe I need to open up my range of sources.
2: And we need to say, wait a minute, we've <laughs> been speaking for too long. It's time to go. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. It's How Do We Fix It? Produced by Miranda Schaefer. Music by Lou Stravinsky. And we're produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Find out more at Davies Content dot com